team for leading us in worship. Good morning, folks. Thank you for your prayers this past week as Cynthia and I got away for a little bit of a break. We enjoyed our time, but we enjoyed coming home even more. So it's great to be with you again this morning. And thanks, Tyler, for your message from God's Word last week. We listened to it on the podcast and um, uh, just solid teaching from the book of Job. And so thankful for your work in that regard. But this morning I'd like us to return once again to the study of John's biographical account of the life and ministry of Jesus. John stated his purpose for writing this gospel account in John chapter 20 verse 31. But these things have been written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In writing was to convince us that Jesus' true identity of his deity. So not surprisingly, in order to accomplish his purpose, John presents evidences that are intended to prove that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. God dressed in human flesh, fully God and fully man. And so far in the first five chapters of John's gospel account, that evidence has included things like eyewitness testimonies, his own, John the Baptist, Jesus' earliest disciples in John chapter 1. And then there have been those works and words of Jesus himself. Convincing proofs. But initially, the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership, remained cautious and skeptical. And then increasingly hostile as John, John's account begins to unfold. Until finally, we read in John chapter 5 verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was, he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jewish religious leadership saw Jesus as a problem that needed to be eliminated for the protection of Judaism and the Jewish people. Chapters 5 and 6 of John actually follow a very similar pattern. Jesus performs an absolutely astounding miracle. Then there's a lengthy discourse and further rejection. In John chapter 5, it was the healing of a lame man who had been lame for 38 years. He was completely restored instantaneously. The healing was initiated when Jesus had told the man to pick up his pallet and walk. It just happened to be the Sabbath, the day of rest. The Jewish religious leaders had determined that carrying a pallet on the Sabbath was a violation of Sabbath law. And so Jesus responded to their objections with a lengthy discourse explaining his identity and exposing the roots of their willful unbelief. A couple of weeks ago, we looked specifically at verses 31 through 47 of John chapter 5, where Jesus exposes the, let's say, the tap roots of their willful unbelief. There were two. Seeking the approval of men. The other side of the coin, of course, is the fear of man. Number two, relying on their own good works as a means of satisfying God's standard of righteousness. In other words, earning His favor. Our ability, yours and my ability to believe is impaired when we are committed to pursuing the approval of man and or earning God's favor 
by our own good works. At that point, belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior becomes unattainable. Instead, we spend our energies suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And so that similar a pattern shows up here again in chapter 6. Like chapter 5, it begins with an unbelievable miracle, followed by a lengthy discourse and then more increased rejection. But sandwiched between this miracle and the discourse that Jesus, lengthy discourse that Jesus provides, there is this exceptional, exceptional encounter, exclusive to Jesus and his disciples. And we'll look at that next week. But for this morning, I want us to focus on just the miracle or the sign as John has consistently referred to them throughout his gospel account. Turn with me for just a moment to the end of John's gospel. John chapter 21. Notice the very last verse in this book. And there are so many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Go back up to chapter 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. The miraculous signs of Jesus were many. And they were never disputed. Jesus was undisputably a miracle worker. No one would argue that. Not even his most vehement opponents. The question was never, did he do it? The question was, by what authority does he do these things? And for some, according to Luke chapter 11, verse 15, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Jesus went on to challenge that explanation, but my point is this. The miracles themselves remained undisputable. And there were many, many miracles beyond number. It's interesting to note the the Apostle John chose just seven of those many miracles that Jesus performed during his three and a half years of public ministry. Only seven. And he consistently refers to them not as miracles, but as signs. You see, John saw them not as an end in and of themselves but as something that was pointing to further revelation about the true identity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This was John's purpose for including these seven miracles in his biographical account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And as and so as we come to this report of the feeding of the 5,000, we know it is intended to be a further revelation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now this miraculous feeding of the 5,000 is an absolutely showstopper of a miracle. It's the fourth of seven signs that John includes in this account. The first of the signs, you'll remember, was that miracle in Cana of Galilee where he was at a wedding and turned water into wine. The best wine. The second was the healing of the royal official's son in Capernaum in John chapter 4. In John chapter 5, we have the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. And now we come to this feeding of the 5,000 here in John chapter 6. 
But the significance of this particular miracle is confirmed by the fact that it is reported in all four gospel accounts. And it is the only miracle of Jesus that is found in all four accounts. That speaks to the momentous impact of this particular miracle. It was an unforgettable event. A memorable moment. It's like the day John F. Kennedy was shot. Or those 9-11 events. Events like these leave an indelible impression on our minds. They are etched in our memories forever. This was also the most public of Jesus' miracles involving about 5,000 men, according to verse 10 here in John chapter 6. And that was just men, not including women and children. So it's not unrealistic for us to envision a crowd of somewhere between 20 and 25,000 people. For sure, it was a multitude that had gathered. Now, like most stories, there is always a beginning, a middle, and an end to the story. The beginning always describes a, a situation that needs or, or calls for some kind of, of action. In the middle, it describes what is done about this needed action. And the story ends, of course, by showing what happens as a result of the action that is taken in the middle part of the story. So if you're able, I would invite you to please stand with me this morning for the reading from God's Word. The feeding of the 5,000, beginning in John chapter 6 and verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus... Lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. Father, the scripture declares that your word 
of God stands forever. And Jesus claimed, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Thank you for this special written revelation that we that we can hold in our hands, see and read with our eyes, hear with our ears, and understand with the help of your Spirit. As we consider Jesus' miraculous display of power in the feeding of this multitude, we want to invite you to to speak to each one of our hearts, individually and even collectively. Help us to break through the familiarity. Use this story to teach, reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness so that we might be adequate, equipped for every good work, works that please you, and count for all eternity. We ask that this be accomplished in the name of Jesus by the power of your Spirit and for your glory. Amen. This is a story of a miraculous feeding of a multitude. The story is true. And we are about to discover the truth in the story. The story begins with, a, with an overwhelming need. The large crowd that had followed Jesus and his, and his disciples into a remote place required nourishment. Notice verse 1. After these things. Now that's a vague marker of time. It's indicating a sequence of events, but with no indication of how much time passes between those two events. So this separates what happened in chapter 5 from what is going to happen in chapter 6. As we piece together the life of Jesus like a jigsaw puzzle from Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John's account, it would appear that there is about a six-month time period between what took place in chapter 5 And what is going to take place here in chapter 6. It's interesting to note that John begins John chapter 5 in exactly the same way. After these things. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. Now, to the other side means that Jesus and his disciples headed to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. That would be the non-Jewish side. About as far away from those Jewish religious leaders that were seeking all the more to kill him back in Jerusalem as Jesus and his disciples could get. Mark's account informs us that this trip to the west side was actually initiated by Jesus in an attempt to take his disciples away so that they could spend time alone and and become refreshed. You see, they'd been involved in a, a fairly intensive season of ministry throughout the province of Galilee. John the Baptist had just been beheaded by Herod. It was time for a break. They headed for the west side of the Sea of Galilee, in a more remote location. Tiberias was a new label for the Sea of Galilee that was gaining popularity around the time that John wrote this gospel account. You see, Herod Antipas had decided that he would build a city on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. He was the Roman-appointed ruler for Galilee and Perea, and He wanted to name the city after the Roman emperor, Tiberius. I'm guessing it was a politically expedient thing to do. Where I come from, they would probably call it a little bit of bootlicking. But anyway, this city that was built 
the name given to it began to expand so that the Sea of Galilee became known as the Sea of Tiberias. Notice verse 2. A large crowd followed him because they saw signs which he was performing on those who were sick. They saw signs which he was performing. That speaks to the crowd's motivation for following Jesus to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. For some it was curiosity, others form of entertainment, I suppose. Crowd dynamics would have been at work, nothing like a growing crowd to attract attention. Funny creatures, aren't we? For sure, there were probably probably those with legitimate needs. If you had a loved one or were struggling with some kind of physical infirmity, an ailment, a chronic sickness, you probably would have followed Jesus to the far side of the Sea of Galilee as well. And we already know from John chapter 2 how Jesus responded to these kinds of pursuers. Look at the end of John chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing, his miracles, healing the sick. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus was well acquainted with the motives for pursuing him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Yet he didn't ignore them. Didn't blow them off, attack their motivation, or drive them away. In fact, Mark's account of this same incident tells us that he did just the opposite. He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Wow. Help me, Lord. I find it so easy to question people's motives. Don't you? And then maybe even to dismiss them as a result of my infallible assessment. That is so unlike Jesus. Then Jesus went up on the mountain And there he sat down with his disciples. And so he took the position of a teaching rabbi. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Some see that as a reference, a theological marker that is important for what is going to come next in the lengthy discourse that we'll study in the weeks ahead. To me, I see it probably as a reference to timing. The Passover, it was, this event took place in, in the spring of the year. Notice verses five and six. Therefore, Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? He was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. In John's account, it was Jesus who acknowledged the need of the account of the crowd. But as notice it was not just the need of the crowd or this multitude. Jesus also administered a test for his disciples. And Philip was his chosen representative, his target. But then Andrew jumps to the occasion as well. And notice, they both fail. F. Philip answered him, and 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone who to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, 
There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Interesting. Philip immediately assesses the monetary requirements to feed such a crowd. A reasonable response, you might say. Pragmatic, common sense, sensible. Andrew, true to his character, is always found in the gospel bringing people to Jesus. He's recruited a young man with a lunch. By the way, those five barley loaves are an indication of poverty. No one would eat barley loaves unless there was nothing else to eat. Perhaps this is an indication of the kind of people that had followed Jesus to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is not an event for the rich and famous. But notice Andrew's final assessment. But what are these for so many people? Remember, both of these disciples, they had witnessed Jesus turn water into wine. The best wine. They had witnessed countless of supernatural healings. They had heard Jesus' astonishing claims about Himself. And they had sat under his teaching, his authoritative teaching, that like no one else had ever taught. And yet they could only see the obstacle. An overwhelming need. Did you notice that Jesus already knew what he was intending to do? when he administered that test. There's a lesson here for you and I. Do you see it? Our faith, it will be tested. It's part of the program. Remember the tree of good and evil, the Garden of Eden? How Abraham was asked to sacrifice His promised son. Remember Peter's denials? Not once, not twice, but three times he denied even knowing the Lord. Testing. It's an unavoidable, God-designed part of the working out your salvation curriculum. Remember reading or hearing an illustration years ago. A prodigal had returned to his faith, repentant and forgiven. As he shared his testimony with his church family, I believe it was a brethren assembly, many wept for joy and congratulated him on his return. But as he shared in the happiness of the the occasion, he couldn't help but notice one old stone-faced elder whose expression never changed throughout the celebration. young man approached him and asked if he was not happy about his return to the faith, to which the old man paused and then replied, We'll see, my dear son. We'll see. I will pray that this is indeed truly your return. When I heard or read that illustration, it irritated me initially. But as I've gone along in my Christian life, I know that that old man knew that this young man's decision would be tested. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul charges believers, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus is among you. If not, 
you have failed the test of genuine faith. It is in the testing that our faith grows. And when we fail to pass the test, it is in our response to that failure that can prove and grow our faith. The Apostle James puts it this way, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The story begins by describing a couple of needs that are calling for action. The first and the most obvious is the physical need of the multitude. They required nourishment. Secondly, was the spiritual need of his disciples. They lacked faith. And Jesus was aware of both needs. The truth is, God is attentive. He is aware of our needs. Physical, emotional, relational, mental, spiritual. The list can go on and on. In fact, He knows us better than we know ourselves. Matthew chapter 11 verse 30 claims that He has the hairs of your head all numbered. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 38. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sign is not hidden from you. In verse 9. Psalm 139 verses 1 to 3 reads, O Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down and stand up, you know my thoughts even when I am far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. God knows everything about you. Everything that there is to know, He knows. He's aware and He's attentive. Even when you find yourself in the midst of circumstances that that cause you to question God's involvement in your life, even then, He is still aware and He's attentive in those times. Recognize God's awareness of your needs. View your needs, all of them, whatever they are, and those tests of your faith as opportunities to trust our Father who art in heaven and yet remains engaged, aware, and intimately involved in the details of our lives. Recognize it. Acknowledge it. Cling to it. God is attentive and aware of the details of your life. The truth is in the story. The story begins with an overwhelming need And it continues with an abundant provision. Jesus provided the required nourishment for the large crowd that followed him into that remote area. Notice verses 10 and 11. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. And having given thanks, among devout Jews it was a common practice to to give thanks before and after meals. And Jewish tradition was to bless the Creator rather than the creation. So if Jesus was following Jewish custom, He would have held up the bread and said something like, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who causes the earth to bring forth 
bread. Amen. In our home, where I was raised, it was always, bless this food to the use of our bodies and us to thy service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And on occasion, it was, bless this food to the use of our bodies and us to thy service. In your name, amen. But the former way was the way my mom it was her habit, and we followed her lead. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, it reads, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I think pausing to acknowledge God's provision before we eat is a good practice to model and to teach. We just need to be careful. It doesn't become a public display of vain repetition. I like the way verse 11 ends. Likewise also with the fish. As much as they wanted. Notice verse 12. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. As much as they wanted, when they were filled, gathered up leftover fragments, filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves after feeding between twenty and 25,000 people. It's hard not to equate those 12 baskets with the 12 tribes of Israel or later with the 12 apostles. But there is no indication in this text of such an association. But what it does indicate is an abundant provision. The truth is, God is a generous God. Hear the words of the psalmist in Psalm 145. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is generous. Everything we have in life is because of God's generosity. We wouldn't have anything. We wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for God's generosity. On Tuesday mornings here at the Rock, men are joining in a time of study and committing to memory verses of Scripture that included, are included in the Navigator Topical Memory System, TMS. Presently, we're working through a package of 12 verses titled, Live the New Life. There are actually five packages of 12 verses each. And in the third package, titled, Rely on God's Resources, Two of the verses have a memory hook titled, His Provision. Listen carefully to these verses. The first is Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? It's a rhetorical question. Here's God who gave up his one and only son. If he would make that kind of a sacrifice, why would he stop short of giving us all that we need? The second is Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God's resources are without limit. Recognize that God is aware of your needs and rest in knowing that God is able, God is capable of meeting all of those needs. What's that little chorus we used to sing years ago? He is able, 
He is able. I know He is able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. He healed the brokenhearted and set the captive free. He made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. He is able. He is able. I know He is able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. Admittedly, you and I have insatiable appetites for more and more and more. And often, enough never seems to be enough. Listen carefully to Jesus' promising invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I purchased a book a number of years ago titled, We Are Driven, Compulsive Behaviors America Applauds. In other words, we live in a culture that applauds us when we engage in certain self-destructive behaviors. Coming to Jesus to find rest for our souls is not one of them. Some of you might recall the country and western group, Alabama. Years ago, they wrote a song, the chorus of which, if I allow it to, will keep me awake at night. I'm in a hurry to get things done. Rushing, rushing till life's no fun. When all I really got to do is live and die. I'm in a hurry. And I don't know why. My goodness. What's wrong with us? What are we thinking? Who are we trying to impress? The Apostle Paul wrote this sobering prescription. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when it is accompanied with contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Rest. Rest in knowing that God is aware and able to meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory and in keeping with his plans and purposes. That doesn't mean that we're not going to show up to work on Monday morning. We're going to work hard. We're going to put in long hours. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, helps me to keep a healthy perspective in the midst of a culture that is promoting compulsive behaviors that lead to self-destruction. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Rest in knowing that God is aware and able to meet all of your needs. The truth is in the story. An overwhelming need, an abundant provision, and an inappropriate response. Jesus resisted the large crowd's attempt to make him king by withdrawing alone into the hills. Notice verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. It's hard not to smile. When you read that, do you see the irony in that text? You may want to take your pencil or pen. I've actually put a box around these words. To make him. How ironic is that? To make him. The one who, according to Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, for by him all things were created, 
both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the created things were going to make their creator king. And apparently by force, if necessary. How ridiculous is that? Presumptuous. Arrogant. Here's how Jesus saw it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. And he said to them all, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let me be very clear. Jesus needs to be the maker in this relationship. We are the ones who desperately need to be remade in a way that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 describes. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Acknowledge your depravity your inability to live a life that lives up to the standard of perfection that God requires for relationship with Him. Repent. Ask for forgiveness on the basis of what Jesus Christ accomplished when He died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you safely home to God. And once home, our transformation begins from the inside out for the rest of our lives. Little by little, we become more and more like Jesus. As the Word of God and the Spirit of God complete this renovation project that begins at the moment of our salvation. Isaiah the prophet uses this imagery to communicate the reality But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are potter. And all of us are the work of your hands. We are the clay. He is the potter. The truth is, God is the potter. We are the clay. Recognize that God is aware of your needs. Rest in knowing that God is capable of meeting any and all of those needs in His timing according to His planning and purposes. Resist in making God fit your plans and purposes. In other words, allow God to be God. You and I have finite minds and will never be able to grasp our infinite infinite God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, according to the prophet Isaiah. Be okay with that. And resist the tendency to make God in your own image, someone who you can manage or manipulate, command or control, ignore or intimidate, use or abuse. Allow him to be the potter, us the clay. This past week, evangelicalism lost one of its stalwarts of the faith at the age of 99. An associate of the Reverend Dr. Billy Graham in an article reflecting on Dr. Graham's life and his influence on his own life, wrote these words. It is impossible to overstate how humble and soft-spoken Billy was. He didn't talk about himself or his accomplishments. This, more than anything else, gave him a noticeable dignity. Remember, Billy grew up on a dairy farm with a humble upbringing. Sounds like you'd fit into Woodstock really well. Dairy capital of Ontario, right? 
He lived in the same house for 60 years. He always remembered his roots and where he came from. He was a country boy. God raised up to preach the word of God. And he never let his globetrotting change his self-image. Though he had access to the most powerful people in the world, he remained a humble person. Anything the Lord accomplished through him, he knew it was the Lord's work and not him. By devoting himself to prayer, by refusing to speak about the growth of his ministry, and by remembering who he was, his humility kept him grounded in his identity as a Christian. He never viewed himself as famous or a celebrity, and this is owing to his humility before the Lord. The inappropriate response was to try to make him. The appropriate response is to allow Jesus to make us. He taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth in our lives, both individually and collectively as it is in heaven. The truth is in the story. Recognize that God is aware of your needs. Rest in knowing that he is capable of meeting all of those needs according to his plans and purposes. And resist in making God fit into your plans and purposes. Father, you are the potter. We are the clay. You are our creator and sustainer of all life. You hold our very breath in your hand. You have numbered our days and set limits we cannot exceed. Thank you for this display of supernatural power, the feeding of the multitude. More proof that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. Help us to respond to you appropriately, not making you into something that serves our purposes, but rather a people who are humble and contrite of spirit and who tremble at your word. A people who believe and obey because we are convinced that there is no other way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.